Welcome to the Present History Podcast. We have a really special episode today, as I had the chance to sit down with Grace Beatty, a public historian and podcaster. This is a really, really interesting conversation. We we go a little bit more conceptual with it, which is always good fun. And stay tuned for a very exciting announcement at the end. Enjoy. So, Grace, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. It's a, another pleasure to have you here. First time on, we were talking about uh, Catherine Howard and her yes. legacy, how she was remembered, and also her life and, and everything she experienced. And we're kind of uh, coming back to a similar topic um, because we're talking about wicked women. We're talking about the idea of legacy and perception throughout history. But before we dive into all of that, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you come from, what you're interested in, uh, what drew you into history? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's great to be back. I'm loving this sort of collaboration for future. But uh, my name is Grace, as you said. I'm originally from California in the United States. And, you know, I've always been super fascinated by sort of the the underdogs or the people from history who don't have a very positive reputation, a very positive mm -hmm. legacy. I didn't put it into context in the sense of a project that I would ever do, but it was always the books at the library or the bookstore that I would find. I would find Mary the First or Catherine mm -hmm. Howard, the ones that most people don't want to celebrate very often. And so once I was in grad school and we were given the opportunity to do a project, I thought, why not sort of combine what I've always been interested in with the new skills that I've been learning in regards to podcasting and social media. And it sort of just ballooned from there <laughs> and turned into yeah. what it is today. That's awesome. So out of out of the master's assignment came Wicked Women, the podcast and the social media that goes along with it. Could you tell us a yes. little bit about the, the thinking behind the podcast? What did you set out to do? What's your kind of mission statement, if you will, uh, for the podcast? Definitely. Yeah, mission statements are always important. Absolutely. I would say that first in the, the fall semester of grad school, we had a podcasting class. Mm. And for the final project for that particular class, we had to create a podcast episode that was 30 minutes. And in my process of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I felt drawn to talking about a woman in history that I had been really passionate about, which was Alexandra Fyodorovna Romanov, the last Tsarina of Russia. And within that, I thought it would be really cool to be able to also interview historians and talk mm. about her legacy with them. And that was sort of the first initial project. Then thinking bigger with the actual final project for the entire master's program, I thought that it would be fun to sort of continue that. It had been really fun to create. I had enjoyed the historians that I had gotten to talk to. And 
I started just thinking of all of these women throughout history that sort of instantly came to mind, not just Alexandra, that I thought I could continue to look at that legacy. I've always, ever since I got really into them as a child, I always questioned why that's what they were remembered for mm. or would try to look at it of in a different angle or this must not be the whole story. They're much more interesting than this. They can't just be the sort of 2D Disney villain that we often see them portrayed as. And so from that point on, I wanted to find women throughout all of history from all over the world that have sort of gone down in the popular imagination. If I was to say their name to somebody, it would not bring about a positive image would not bring about the Elizabeth the first or Queen mm. Victoria image of women in power. And so from there, I just started researching. Some of them were women that I knew already, like Alexandra and Mary the first and Catherine Howard, but others I started to explore more. I wanted to diversify, which at the beginning became much more difficult than I had expected because the more diverse you go, the more scholars you find that don't speak English. Mm. And so you have to sort of work around that or try to find other people who would be able to come on, which is still something that I can continue working on. And I want to continue trying to diversify it a little bit more Mm. in whatever way I can. But after the project was over, I had enjoyed doing it so much and it did seem to have a genuinely positive reaction that I thought to just continue doing it for fun and for myself Mm. and also to potentially become, you know, a calling card for my own skills in the history world for future reference. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it works well. And it's a, it's a fascinating podcast as a whole, because like you say, you're looking at these women who have been remembered a certain way, usually in a negative way where they've done things in their lives, which, potentially at the time they were thinking they were doing in their in their best interests or as the best course of action but have come to be remembered as purely negative or their legacies have kind of been tainted by potentially the historians that were there at the time and their stories of them or the way that culture has changed and shifted and so this idea of legacy is a fascinating concept to me um in a kind of weird question, what do you think a legacy is? What are, what are the factors that feed into the idea of legacy? I mean, if you look at the, the literal definition, it is sort of a concept that is handed down from one generation to a next. That's mm. sort of the, the literal translation of what a legacy means, which therefore... I feel like almost the entirety of history is one big legacy because that's how it works. It's just passed down from generation to generation and later descendants. I mean, we will all eventually become based on a legacy that we don't necessarily get to write. It's something Mm. that our children or grandchildren or society as a whole will remember about us. Yeah. And so It is something that plays a role in a lot of historical research in general and looking back on how people are remembered that in itself is going back to the concept of a legacy and the concept of, you know, 
not to to quote Hamilton, but it always perfectly encapsulates the idea of like who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Mm. And that sort of is the legacy of like who's going to tell your story will be completely dependent on how you're remembered in later generations. Because as I look at with the women in my episode, those negative legacies could have just as easily been spun as a positive legacy if a different person had been in charge of creating the narrative around them. So it can happen with all of us as well, which is an interesting thing to think about that not only will we all have our own legacies, but we don't always get to choose them either. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's this kind of concept that's traditionally been held within historiography and history in general, that history is written by the victors those that win get to tell the story is that a, a similar kind of concept that's brought into the the legacies of these women and the, their perceptions for sure i mean just some of them off the top of my head i mean with with mary the first she was a catholic monarch and after her it became a completely protestant country so her position her motivations will look completely different Alexandra Romanoff, after her reign, it becomes the Soviet Union. All th- mm. The last thing they would want to do was to portray her in a positive light. And on down the line, even Empress Wu Zetian, like, her son comes to the throne. He wants to ensure that women do not come to power again. And wow. so therefore, he's going to ensure that how people remember her is very negative. And then even into sort of less obvious sort of rulers but you do look at people like Catherine Howard and Jane Boleyn people who went against sort of that stereotype as of women as pure and subservient and sort of maternal instincts where therefore they are sort of reframed as almost a moralizing tale they're going to be used by later generations of why that shouldn't be acceptable behavior, whether it be through sexuality or through the kind of violence or power that they exude in their lifetime. So it often is very much viewed in that kind of way, that it is dependent on what kind of message is being told by later generations. Yeah, and I guess which which narrative helps the new generation or the the new rulers, the new teachers almost. And what you touched on there was the interesting idea of of stereotypes. Um, Because a lot of these women were breaking stereotypes that were fundamentally ingrained within their society. Um, And you look at someone like you mentioned, Catherine Howard, who was breaking stereotypes of the kind of behavior of a woman or the freedoms of a woman or a woman kind of being able to govern her own life uh, or Empress Theodora, who whose life is is fascinating, um, you know, working in, in the sex trade and then, you know, working as, as the empress all the way up there. And so you've got the breaking of stereotypes is almost inherent within women's history. So in terms of legacy and how we remember these women, how large of a role did these stereotypes that were once ingrained and are now being shifted out of or being destroyed in modern culture, how large of a role do these stereotypes t- play in the telling of their stories? 
I think a massive role in this idea that not only within their own lifetimes, but later generations as well. I mean, so many of these women, sort of the core of their legacy came out of the Victorian era, when many people start to become professional historians, they start to research these people. And most of these women do not fit the Victorian standard of <laughs> womanhood at yeah. all. But it is the stereotypes that I think often, when you see someone who doesn't fit that perception that you come to expecting them to fit this specific role, it is very disturbing to people. It can mess with your entire concept of society, of individuals, of gender, of sexuality. And so oftentimes when they are different from that, it's hard to see it positively. It sure. feels almost threatening that also depending on the era, if you look at the Victorian era, you don't want to show these women in a positive light because that could convince other women to start acting like that. Yeah. And so and that, that the way dangerous. to ensure, <laughs> yeah, that's the last thing they want. They, yeah. they don't want a bunch of women running around Victorian London acting like Empress Theodora. Mm. <laughs> that would be sort of the nightmare of most of the men in that era. And so the only way is to create them as sort of this proof that see what negatively happens when women act this way. And yes, it is starting to be reanalyzed and it's starting to be looked at differently with the second wave of feminism in the 70s. However, these stereotypes or these legacies of these women are still hard to get rid of. And you do also see sometimes they end up acting as a foil to a woman from the era as well, who was more positive in the way that they acted that even though they're also becoming a feminist oftentimes i look at elizabeth the first and mary the first feminists she is the ideal feminist icon elizabeth the first mm. she reigns for a long time she's pretty badass i don't know if i can guess <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> but you know she is all of these things that sort of fit this ideal of a fiery woman that you wanted to mm. see in the second wave of feminism. But also by making Mary the first sort of the villain that almost makes Elizabeth the first feminist version bigger that she like overcame this other woman who wanted to drag her down or this other woman who used her power in the wrong way. Mm. So Elizabeth the first used her power in the right way versus Mary the first. So even today, you still see this attempt to moralize it, mm. even though it's now taking a feminist spin. But I think it's still hard for people to call Mary the first a feminist icon because she does kill people, but so does Elizabeth the first. But that's sort of forgotten oftentimes to make her this ideal feminist that everyone should want to emulate in their personal lives. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And in the in the situation of Elizabeth I and Mary I, you've also got this juxtaposition between Mary wanting to be married and then she ends up marrying Philip of Spain, whereas Elizabeth is 
um, kind of lauded as the virgin queen who who never got married, who never had the the burden of um, the the ball and chain, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So um, yeah. you've got this juxtaposition as well. Does do you think that was encouraged as a, a prevailing narrative to better portray Elizabeth as this feminist icon instead of Mary? Yeah, and I I think, I mean, there's always been a spin on Mary's marriage and Mm. desire for children, even during Elizabeth's own reign. But this sort of version of, you know, sad Mary, the Mm. Mary who is not married for many, many years, falls in love with this man much younger than her. He is disgusted by her as the narrative goes. So she fails in that realm. She also fails in the realm of giving birth in the first place. But you do often see her being used within that feminist narrative also as the woman who does fit that stereotype. She wanted marriage. She wanted children. She wanted to be subservient to her husband. And therefore, Elizabeth doesn't do any of that. And so you do see this rewriting of her legacy in more recent years away from sort of a tyrannical evil ruler, but still nowhere near a positive portrayal Mm. of her. And it is almost the opposite effect now is that she's almost not feminist feminist enough now Mm. where in the past she was too powerful and went against too many (laughs) of the stereotypes. Wow. So poor Mary the first just, always uh she never wins she she <laughs> can never catch don't. a break yeah they, no. they can't catch a break can't catch a break no. but that's interesting this moralizing aspect that you you touched on earlier is interesting when we look at going back to the first kind of pages of history where you've got herodotus and thucydides and livy who are crafting what we would probably recognize as as history um and a lot of the time they were writing to illustrate to the Greek people or the Roman people how best to live. And that's a similar kind of concept that you're um, picking up on with the idea of portraying these women either as someone to avoid and to not be like. So oh, don't be like Catherine Howard, don't be like Empress Theodora because you know they're not fitting what we want them to do or want them to be. Or on the other hand, do be like these people because they're breaking stereotypes and they're rising above the the boundaries and the barriers. And that's a a kind of interesting dichotomy as well, is this moralistic diversity. And do you think that's that's shifted over time and it's it's changing or is it kind of always been that dichotomy? I think there's always been an aspect of a moralizing tale. I think that it's more that the morals that they're trying to teach have changed. Sure. That, you know, yes, in the in the Victorian era, it was very much a moralizing tale against sexual promiscuity and a woman getting above her station and being pushy or being evil in that way. That's no longer in today's society what you can use as a moralizing tale. But there is still a sense that certain women from history still shouldn't be used as an example of, oh, this is a great feminist icon that we should all look to. Mm. But 
that was something that always bothered me, which also motivated me to make this podcast that, you know, when I look at these books, these books that have been coming out for the past like decade, these, you know, rebel women or whatever, bad women from history, they do feature women who were not all good. They feature people like Catherine the Great and Elizabeth the First, women who did also murder people. Mm. But there's been sort of this societal agreement to push that aside so that we can celebrate the aspects of them that were positive. Interesting. And that is the interesting part that I see oftentimes that where is the line drawn where women can cross the line too far mm. where therefore you can't find anything good in them where there are people like what we've mentioned, these other women that seem like they've sort of universally been agreed upon that their sins, so to speak, are too large, where Catherine the Greats and Elizabeth the First, we can sort of push those away for the moment because the better parts of them are more important. Wow, that's really interesting. Like where where is this line in, in your yeah. research and in your understanding? Where have you kind of maybe seen the line to be or or has that even shifted over time like in the victorian era the line was here and now in the modern era the lines moved or where where do you see that being yeah i I do think the line has shifted of because there have been now these books that are published where yeah a lot of the women featured in the victorian era were not talked about in a positive manner the turn of the 20th century, they were not talked about. Marie Antoinette is a great example, Mm. or Anne Boleyn. These women now are massive icons and people are wanting to write books and reanalyze them in a way that they never would have been in the Victorian era. The line itself, I don't know if there's a specific thing that a woman has to do to cross the Mm. line. I think that it all comes down to how influential they were, how long they'd been in power or on the sort of historical stage so people might know about them, but also the kind of like sympathy, if you can find sympathy for them, like Marie Antoinette, people have now found sympathy for this woman. And Anne Boleyn as well, like not only is she this feminist icon, but people find sympathy because they don't believe that she was guilty of the things that she was executed Mm. for. And so it's an interesting aspect of where is that line because it's very hard to find a line because if you look hard enough, you'll see some women on the positive side, some women on the negative side, but they share a lot of their actions. So one has just been positively portrayed, one's been more negatively portrayed. And sometimes they've done very, very similar things. Wow. That's that's fascinating. So in terms of these stereotypes and breaking these stereotypes and kind of moving on from them, how important do you think it is that we do that, that we break them, that we move on from them, that we kind of leave them in the past? I think not only is it good to change the narratives for the sake of these women who have been, you know, throughout history known in a very specific negative way, But I think for us in society, it also can provide us with a much more well-rounded understanding of history and of our past. 
that for so long because of the narratives that have been passed down to us have been passed down through the words of men mm. we lose half of history that way that we don't we don't fully understand our own actions and where we are today when we don't see these women as full human beings mm. and i think also for today's standards it can help us see potentially women in power in future that if these stereotypes are the ones being passed throughout history of course we won't want women in power because this is always what happens except for the few anomalies like elizabeth the first who happened mm. to rise above it all i guess that if we come to see them as just as human and just as flawed as male rulers, we can start to visualize them successfully in power, I think a lot mm. better. That I think women even today are often more relegated to these stereotypes of either good or bad, but or terms that you hear used for women that you never use for men. That there is sort of this double standard that men are forgiven for human flaws and women are not. And I think that that is partially because of the narrative we've been given for so long about what happens when a woman is in power or when a woman speaks her mind or when a woman lives life by her own standards. We get these narratives of, well, everything goes wrong <laughs> at that point. Mm. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And so do you think that, I mean, this is kind of touching on something that we, we spoke about earlier, but do you think that the standards are much more black and white for women in history and in our portrayal of women in history, that you're either good or bad, whereas with men, it's it's a little bit more grey. You can kind of get out of things a little bit easier. You can kind of navigate your legacy a little bit easier uh do you do you see that being the case that for the women it's very kind of black and white i do i i think that the more you look at it the more you see that sort of black and white that you know especially when i was doing the katherine howard episode you know we thought about it that words like stupid and mm. immature and you know sexually promiscuous those have been given to her but when you look at men from the era like cromwell for example you would mm. never see him labeled as stupid by historians <laughs> he's sort of given the benefit of the doubt that yeah he made mistakes and yeah we sort of universally agree at this point that he wasn't an entirely good person and that he yeah. did frame people for things that they did not commit but at the same time he is remembered as this incredibly intelligent politician and the mistakes that he makes are not put on him as like well that was a stupid mistake <laughs> whereas when people look at Catherine Howard it's like well she was an idiot so like how did she yeah. not know this was going to happen mm. and so you do see it I think oftentimes that men are given the benefit of the doubt or at least given a much more nuanced portrayal that they made mistakes but they also mm. had these positive things that they did and not to say that there aren't women in history who are described that way but i think it's more rare where it's more sure. rare to see a man in history described in the way that a woman is mm. 
Yeah, and just just for reference there as well, that was Thomas Cromwell, not Oliver Cromwell. Yes, Thomas yeah. Cromwell. Sorry, British viewers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's too yes, many Cromwells. Cromwell. We, we can't keep track. <laughs> too many Cromwells. Although Oliver Cromwell is never called stupid either. So. No, that, that I guess it all pretty much stands, other than maybe the brilliant politician part. But um, Yes, no, exactly. Um, so kind of following this along and kind of drawing this out a little bit, history as activism. It's something that we've kind of seen, especially very recently with um, when we had the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's death and we had the Colston statue being torn down. We had widespread debate about statues in general. Should we have statues? What are the point of statues? Um, And, you know, making sure that the statues we put up in future are better statues. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So so kind of following along this idea of history as activism, what's your take on history as activism, but then in terms of women's history and the portrayal of women in modern history? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say that a lot of history, especially more recently, is often viewed as activism because I think with a lot of the narratives that we've been given are being challenged and Mm. being fleshed out and given more context. And it isn't sort of this black and white moralizing tale as much anymore. And, you know, I think that that is not necessarily only historians who are taking Mm. it more of the activist way. But I think that at the same time, people look to the historians to prove that the activism is correct. That it's like, sure. okay, but where are the sources that say this isn't right? Or where are the artifacts that are expanding our knowledge? That mm. yes, we can all have Twitter debates on whether <laughs> we think a statue should or should not be removed. Yeah, But the debate is much more weighty when you bring those sort of historiography discussions to the forefront Mm. and for women's history I think a lot of I mean even the term women's history was a form of activism at the time Mm. that before it was just all history but then you know second wave of feminism came through and it started to be discussed about the fact that maybe women deserve their own history and deserve their own authors and their own sources. Mm. And that was tied up within the women's liberation movement activism that was going on. And, you know, I think the important role for a historian also is to always see themselves as that activist, see themselves who, you know, don't look at your role as filling in the narrative that's always been there. Like that's our role. Mm is to be trained so that we can challenge the preconceived notions, not only of gender and women and men, but in societies as a whole. You know, we are seeing that reckoning in America with the Black Lives Matter movement, but also reanalyzing people like Thomas Jefferson, that Mm. for the longest time he was used as sort of an iconic version of the great American narrative that there was for people. And 
it's being questioned, which I think it should be, mm. but it's being questioned because historians have found those records that then they can present that it's like, I'm not just making this a political discussion. Like here are the sources that are complicating this narrative. And from there, then we can start a larger discussion around that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're, we're both public historians. That's, that's mm. what we do. That's, that's the realm that we're in. And recently, it's been very interesting to me kind of looking at public history and then how we practice public history as individual public historians and coming to terms with the fact that history is the collection of all of the stories of all of the people and all of the events that have lived and have happened throughout all of time. And so by virtue of that, historians are storytellers. We are the yeah. people telling the stories of the past. And for us as public historians, we're telling those stories in the public sphere, in the public eye and to the public. And so I think when, like you mentioned with Twitter and, and you know, social media is a, is a beast. It is a monolith yes. <laughs> in today's society. And it can be a real source of misinformation. It can be a real source of bad information or misleading information. Maybe it's not all dangerous or purposefully incorrect, but a lot of it can be very misleading. And so I'm, go I'm going to say a statement, and I'd like to get your, your thoughts on that. Um, the, his the public historian's role is to populate social media and the public sphere with accurate and reliable information that people can fall back on in a world that is saturated with unsubstantiated historical claims. Thoughts? I think that is an amazing goal. <laughs> mm. I, I don't think it's always as easy to accomplish that because yeah. truth can be questioned by people that even if you provide these documents, even if you provide this kind of reference to what you're arguing is truth, there will be people who will not want to believe that truth mm. and will fight it regardless. But I do think social media is an amazing opportunity to start these discussions but also to open up the historical discussion to the public that mm. I think it is very important for these kinds of historical conversations to happen with historians, with people who have researched these things where their knowledge is based in these facts. But sometimes it's really fascinating to see historical conversations happening with just everyday people there are sometimes things that are brought up that you would never think of because you are, as a historian, very focused on the facts. Sure. That I think there that comes with a big warning sign in front of it <laughs> that you shouldn't read those stories, like the debate on whether Elizabeth I had a child or whether, mm. you know, things like this, these kinds of debates or who the author of Shakespeare's work really is. You know, those debates are fascinating and should be looked into. But there is also the warning of 
don't read that and then be like, oh, but that must be true. Mm. That's where you need the historian to come in and be like, well, this is these are the records that we have. These are the records we don't have. But also being okay to be like, that could be a fact, mm. but we don't know. So let's be aware of calling this a, a potential <laughs> that this could yeah. have happened. But if you don't have the primary source records to back it up, I think it is very dangerous to therefore assert that that is truth. And that's mm. the realm of where, yeah, social media has the potential to get scary. <laughs> that yeah. it's hard to remember that there's a difference between truth and possibility. That Ooh, there's yeah. a lot of possibilities in the past, not always backed up by facts and truth because mm. we just don't have them anymore. But I would agree with you that I think every historian or public historian who chooses to interact with social media, their goal should be to try to stay unbiased in the sense of whatever arguments they're making online should be backed up by the facts that through mm. their own training, they're able to find and able to present to people. Mm. If that makes sense. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what you're bringing up there is the idea of an absolute reliance on the sources. Like you, you don't say anything that's unsubstantiated. You don't say anything that isn't backed up by at least one source because, you know, you can make up things until the cows come home, but it's the the real facts that are that are actually true. And yeah. so kind of following that on as well, as someone who creates a historical podcast, who engages with social media in a historical sense, um, how do you approach doing history? nowadays um how do you go about writing history or talking about history communicating history in in your sphere of influence yeah i would say that that is partially why i was really adamant about wanting historians on the podcast mm. that you know i can find my information using the primary sources that i know how to look for or using other historians work but I think that when you are potentially complicating a very set narrative, you should use as many authoritative voices as possible. Mm. And so to have someone whose entire career as a historian is based around the study of this particular person or this particular era, they will add weight to the concept of maybe we need to look at this person differently rather yeah. than just me over here being like, I think <laughs> mm, <laughs> from my yeah. minimal research, this <laughs> might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as well as, you know, I do try as much as possible to bring contemporary sources to the mm. podcast that the work of later historians is invaluable. And because we also do find information later, much later, we find new things that shed light on different aspects of a person's story. But at the same time, if there is a theory, I just recently did an interview for another episode that will be coming up on um, Isabeau of Bavaria, who was a queen in France. And this interviewer or interviewee 
Tracy Adams had been saying that a lot of these rumors and stereotypes and legacies that have come out of Izubo, when you actually look into the sources, none of these exist during her own lifetime. They are wow. all after. And so, you know, she was saying that that was what motivated her to start looking at her differently. That mm. if this was never even written about, not only in, you know, newspapers, which, yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to put that out when she is mm. queen, but even within letters and within diaries and within references to her, maybe that in itself should be an indication that some of this isn't true. Mm. And so I think that that is important, even on Mary the First as well, like this term Bloody Mary, this concept of her as a murderous queen who martyred all of these Protestant saints, mm. that was never a discussion during her lifetime, at least in England. It yeah. was then with John Fox and his writings that created mm. this legacy, but that's seven years after she's dead and wow. Elizabeth is now queen. And so it's interesting, you know, when you look at the contemporary sources, it seems like people were overjoyed when Mary became queen. That, mm. you know, Catholicism was still a major religion in England, hidden because of her father and then her brother in power. But, you know, you hear these stories of churches bringing out their crucifix and bringing out their relics that had been in hiding. That is almost more captivating than this Bloody Mary na narrative that came on much later. Mm. And so I think for me, those are things that are important to fall back on as well. That these aren't just, you know, I have a gut feeling that Mary the First wasn't as awful as they say. <laughs> it's like presenting those facts that potentially back up that gut feeling in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's kind of starting with the gut feeling thing. I, surely there's got to be something different here, surely. Yeah. And then making sure that you take what the sources say over what you think might happen. Because you can go with a gut feeling and go, yes, there has to be something different about this. But if all the sources say, no, no, it's, it's, it's right, it's been right the whole time, yeah. you have to go, okay, fine, my gut feeling was wrong. That's right. okay. And um, that's where in, fiction comes in as well. That yeah. fiction is where people can use that gut instinct and run with it. Like, go with mm. it. Some of the best novels that I have read about historical characters are the ones where someone just went with a gut feeling. And mm. by the end, your whole perspective has changed. But that's also the great thing about fiction, historical fiction is that it shouldn't be taken as the truth. But maybe that person who closes the book at the end and are just like, wow, I never even thought that could be the potential, then mm. maybe they will go and try to find the truth behind that gut feeling that an author had. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. It's all about inspiring further engagement with with history as well. Exactly. So, so as we approach history, one of the biggest things that we have to wrestle with, other than the sources themselves and trying to decipher what actually happened, um, it's also our own biases, right? It's our religious biases, our political biases. Whatever it might be, every human, every person has their own 
set of beliefs, thoughts, ideas that they will bring to whatever they do. And it's no different with history. So in terms of navigating these biases, and I guess in some senses striving for objectivity, while knowing that objectivity might be impossible for us to reach as mere humans, um, how, how do you go about addressing your biases and in your writing of history? And how would you potentially advise someone um, as they're writing history on, on how to navigate that? I would say first, the most important step is acknowledging that you do have a bias. Yes. Even, yeah. I mean, even the act of me creating this podcast is a bias that mm. I'm wanting to find something that shows that these women are potentially different than their sort of classic negative negative legacy. That in mm. itself is a bias. And mm. I'm going to try to find the information that will show a different side of them. So I think that's always important that no matter what, even if it's a positive spin that you're trying to take on things or a reanalysis, that in itself is a bias. And so being aware of that as you go into it, I think is really important because it will help you from going over the top in trying to exonerate or change the narrative. And that's why I make it very clear at the beginning of my podcast episodes that I'm not trying to exonerate these women. Mm. You know, I think we can all in today's society agree that burning people at the stake is not a cool thing. (laughs) (laughs) That You know, sending people to their deaths, that's not cool. And I Mm. think we can all agree with that. And, you know, even for a future episode that will be coming out, like I'm looking at a woman who poisoned her father and two brothers. That's never a way to handle family issues. I think we can all agree. But it's looking at the ways in which people have looked at that aspect of their lives that, Mm. yes, they did things. And that's part of the looking at the whole human that, I mean, Every action I've ever done in my life haven't, hasn't been good and hasn't mm. come from a positive place within myself because I'm human. <laughs> yeah. But I would hope that in 100 years from now, people don't pick out only the things that I did wrong mm. and say, therefore, she was a horrible person. It's yeah. like, no, like, yeah, I did some things that weren't great, but I also did things that were great. And I would hope that people would look at both of those things when they are judging me in later generations. And so I think that that is also important to acknowledge throughout our bias is we're not going to go in and fully find an opposite version of the story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember it in undergrad that one of my professors talked about it of looking at everyone within the context of their time and that will help in regards to your bias it won't fully get rid of it but looking at someone like mary the first and realizing that everyone was burning heretics it's Mm. doesn't exonerate her because we can still agree that that's not okay but it can put it in a context of she was a person in her own time that mm. that in itself 
is not the one action that should condemn her forever because everyone was doing it. So therefore everyone should be condemned. And so there's a different spin to take on it of not agreeing with the action, not saying we can like conveniently forget that they did that thing in trying to rehabilitate them, but just acknowledging that perhaps some of their actions came from the time that they lived in and mm. the ways that they were raised and the kinds of trauma that they had or the kind of dysfunctional family life they had that will mold them into the person that they are. And so it's not necessarily full rehabilitation because I think that in itself is bias. It's more mm. just trying to find an empathy for it and mm. maybe a deeper reason behind why they did those things and why those were their choice of action because you think of it even today when someone does something to you you know you could just condemn them be like they're an awful person and there should be no forgiveness or you say why did they do that what mm. where are they coming from what kind of things are they bringing with them into this situation that is creating a person or a response that may be much bigger than myself also mm. that you know you have family the way you're raised the the different intergenerational traumas that are brought down that will turn you into the person you are but i would mm. hope that none of us will be completely condemned in later generations for the mistakes that we make yeah no that that's really good and i think it's important as well at this point to mention that there because i think biases is so such a loaded term and it's yes. always viewed as a negative term but there are positive biases as well so For my sure. my bias when creating historical content is i want to inform people i want to educate them mm -hmm. but i also want to them to inspire them um and i also want to show them how history directly affects us today and then how we can use that understanding to build a better future and that's my bias and i would personally say that that's maybe a positive bias but that yeah. is that's a bias in itself as well so there are positive and negative biases as well so i think yeah what, yeah i think i think that? that's important not only like i said to acknowledge that bias but yeah we we should we should take away the sort of negative spin mm. that bias is always a bad thing because yeah. it's true. Like it's not sometimes the desire to do good things, whether it be through history or just in your personal life, that is a bias because you're going to make choices depending on yeah. that feeling within yourself. And you're going to look for a specific narrative or you're going to look for a specific story to focus on and that is a bias mm. but yeah it isn't always negative and maybe we need a new word because it is <laughs> yeah that oftentimes when we talk about bias it is because we're talking about something negative that mm. you know we're talking about why these women are negative that came from a bias for the person who wrote about them in whatever yeah. era or yeah, the, the way that America is reckoning with the history of enslavement. That is because mm. we're looking at the bias that came from people who wrote about it in more recent mm. 
generations soon after the Civil War. So we don't often frame it in a positive light, even though every single person, the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, there is bias acting in Mm. their actions. So maybe we just need a a rebrand. Maybe we need need two (laughs) words, a negative version and a positive version. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the word inclination? Do you think that that works better because you're inclined to something, you're inclined to something good or inclined to something negative? Do you think inclination works? I think it works, but that's where the problem lies is it doesn't bring to mind the same concept of bias. And so I think that would be the problem with rebranding is an inclination just doesn't carry the same weight as saying you have a bias. Yeah, that's true. So that's, I think that is probably why it's really hard to try to (laughs) reconfigure what that word means because other words that exist out there to the first thing that comes to mind is not the same (laughs) as bias. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. Well, maybe we we need to bring in history's marketing team and and they can sort that one out. Yeah, bring it in. (laughs) We'll come up with a whole new term, put it in the new dictionaries and we'll be good to go. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) That would be perfect. Uh, So as a kind of final question to to round it all up, um, we've talked a lot of concept, a lot of theory uh, on yeah. this episode what would you say to the lay person who might not have studied history or just has a general interest in history what would you say to them when they approach history as they come to read a historical book or um, even historical fiction or a film or something like that what are some things that you think it's important for them to keep in mind when they interact with history that's a good question i would say first to remember that these are people. It's, mm. I think it's really hard. I mean, I I do it too, that these people are so far removed and feel so foreign to us that it can be really hard to even comprehend their reasonings, their actions, their day-to-day life. It's just completely unrelated to everything that we live through. But I think that once you reframe it, to think about the fact that these are people like you and me, that can change the way that you understand the past. And I think that for me personally, ever since I was young, the the question I always sort of naturally asked myself, which has served me well in now the field that I'm in, was, well, what would I have done? Mm. That's always been really helpful. And yes, it was initially when I was, getting obsessed with the Titanic. And that was my question of, (laughs) oh, what would I have done on the ship? Mm. But at the same time, then you look at people like Alexandra Romanoff, who oftentimes people just do not have a good view of her. She's a fanatic. She gets involved with Rasputin. She's in Mm. fault for Russia falling apart. But then you think about it and you really like take a minute to put it in perspective of, you if you had a child who was in pain most of the time was Mm -hmm. extremely ill and there's nothing anyone can do for you what would you have done and Mm. you know even not only what would you have done but think of a child in your own life if that was their situation what would you do and 
that may not be what Alexandra did, but I think in that moment there gives you a, a bigger sense of empathy of yeah. sort of the, there's a no, no win in that situation, in that scenario. And so I think that that is always the most important part entering history is just mm. what would I have done and remember that they are people. And mm. like I said in one of the previous questions, I know that I have in hindsight made mistakes before that I look back on. It's like, God, why, why was that what I did? <laughs> when now I know like that led to this, that, and the other. But also I made that moment, that choice in the moment with no comprehension for what was going to come next. And so that's also important to remember that these people, we're looking at them in hindsight. We know what ultimately happens to them and what their actions cause, but they had no idea in the moment that that's what was mm. going to happen and potentially would have chosen a very different action if they had mm. known what would happen. And then probably the other thing is just, yeah, rely on sources use things like mm. fiction use things like television and movies to inspire you to make you want to learn more about a person but don't let that be the end of your journey in discovering more about this mm. let it be the impetus to then go to sources and try to find diaries and letters and contemporary sources that give you a better picture of this person than what Hollywood can provide to you mm. in 90 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. I think that that's fantastic advice. Um, and this episode has been a little bit different, partly because it also serves as an announcement that yes. uh, Wicked Women, the podcast, will be coming into present history and will be one of the podcasts that we do here, which I'm very excited about. Um, bringing yes. Wicked Women in because I, I love the podcast. I think it's a fantastic idea. And as we've spoken about in this episode, the thinking behind it is very conscious and um, I think is very positive um, for the whole idea, the whole ethos behind present history as well of, of creating a better future. So I'm very, very excited uh, for Wicked Women coming. I am to too. I mean, I'm so excited about it. It's such a exciting partnership to think of in the future mm. that the things we'll be able to accomplish will be really incredible and you know hopefully keep doing what we're doing <laughs> sharing the past and gently complicating the narrative for people exactly no i love that phrase gently complicating the narrative i love that because that's what historians do we're always like it's more complicated than that guys it's actually a bit <laughs> it's more, more nuanced <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you'll be able to find the entire backlog of the Wicked Women podcast uh, on YouTube because we're bringing it over there. And it's already on Spotify. It's already on Apple Music, you've, uh, Apple Podcasts. It's already on there. But the entire backlog will be coming to YouTube on the 13th of February. So that's very exciting. And I believe a brand new episode of the podcast will be coming out on the 13th as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What to expect? Yeah, so the 13th of February will be the episode, I, I briefly mentioned it incognito in one of my previous episodes, or one mm. of my previous answers. It will be on uh, Marie de Bronvier, who was mm. a French woman who was executed 
for poisoning her father, her two brothers, and multiple patients at a hospital. And she is also seen as sort of the beginning of an event in French history known as L'Affaire de Poison, which is the the affair of the poisons, which implicated Mm -hmm. many aristocrats in poisonings and witchcraft and sort of went through a a wild time, even got as close to Louis XIV as implicating one of his mistresses as well. And so it is, she's a fascinating character. I interview Benedetta Dorami, who is a professor of law in California. So we get a little into also the the legal side of her case Mm. and the ways in which she argues it is much more of a story of female resistance than just a woman on a murderous rampage. But yeah, we'll also hopefully expand the conversation around sort of our modern day fascination with female killers as well, female Mm. serial killers. And hopefully we'll lead into more episodes that will focus on women that fit that criteria. Wow. No, now I'm excited to listen to it. That sounds amazing. That sounds yes. amazing. Well, Grace, Grace, thank you so much for coming on this episode. We look forward to working together in, in the future with Wicked Women and everything else. So thank you for yes. coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube, follow us on social media and on uh, podcasting networks so that you can keep up to date with everything that we do. And make sure to follow Grace. All the links will be in the description and the episode notes so you can find them all there. Make sure to follow her and follow us so you can keep track of everything that will be coming with Wicked women. It's exciting times here at Present History, so stay tuned. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.